On February the 26th, 1852, the HMS Burkhead uh, was on its way to Cape Town, South Africa, three miles off the coast of South Africa, two o'clock in the morning, it hits a boulder in the water and it begins to sink. You're going to see a picture of it here, a drawing of it here. Here's the Birkin head right there, the ship. Uh, British ship, British troop ship uh, that uh, had mainly troops on it, on it, 643 people in all. Uh, when they hit that rock, uh, Captain Robert uh, Salmon uh, just appeared up on deck and started shooting orders. There were eight lifeboats. They could only get three of them down. The rest of them, for some reason, were incapacitated. They couldn't get them down, but they got three of these lifeboats into the water, and nobody in those early morning hours had to explain women and children first. It was just what happened. Women and children got into the boats, uh, filled the boats. There were not near enough boats there. And um, then they started what was called funeral order. You start with the youngest male, and you begin to work your way up until the boats were filled. Now, in the midst of all that, uh, Captain Salmon uh, ordered his troops to stand, um, to stand fast. They were to line up, and they were to stand fast. And when the ship broke apart, as you see there in the picture, as it broke apart in that drawing, uh, those rescue boats or lifeboats were making their way toward South uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, and uh, as the boat broke apart, the officers pulled their guards on their soldiers, uh, pulled their uh, swords on, these, on their soldiers. And they did it because they did not want these soldiers to break rank, jump the ship, swim to the lifeboats, and turn the lifeboats over. But not a single man in the entire regiment broke rank as that ship went down. It went down in some of the most notorious shark-infested waters in the world. Out of the 643 on that ship, 163 people made it alive to shore. It was the people in the lifeboats. Almost every soldier, there were one or two who made the three-mile swim, but only two or three made that swim. The rest either drowned or were eaten by sharks. Stand firm was the command. Now take your Bibles with that in your mind, stand firm, go with me to Ephesians and listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. He gives that command here three times. In verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul says, stand firm. He comes down at the end of verse 13 and he says, stand firm. He comes at the beginning of verse 14, and he says, stand firm. Now, you and I do not serve the British Empire. We have a different king, and we serve a different kingdom. And the word to us as men is in this day and time where the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket is to stand firm, stand like men. Don't break ranks. Stand together. Be the men of God. 
being the man of God means that I do whatever is necessary for those that are under me and those that are around me and those that are in my care. Now, I have, on the first Wednesday night, I shared with you that God created you first. That's the one thing I hope you take away from that, was that God created you first, which means he created you to lead. You are to be a leader. The second Wednesday night, last Wednesday night, I shared with you about the fact that you are a fallen man, but in Jesus Christ, you've been reconciled to God. You come in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and that's basically what Paul is talking about, our being reconciled to God. We're going to stay right here in Ephesians, so, but it's going to be Ephesians chapter 5. He comes to chapter 4, and 4, 5, and 6, he's going to talk about how we live that out. How do we live out this thing of being reconciled? I am a leader. God created me first. I'm a leader, and I've been reconciled to God. How, do, how does a reconciled man lead now? And where does he lead? Not just in the military, not just in the workplace, but let me tell you, the most important place of all that you lead is in your home. How you lead your children and your family will be determined on how you lead your wife. So I'm going to get specific. Chapter 4, he's going to talk to us about how we're reconciled uh, to one another. We're not just reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to one another. Listen to what he says. Verse 2 of chapter 4, with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are reconciled. We men are reconciled to each other. We're reconciled uh, together in the church. He's going to talk about that in chapter four, verse twenty-nine. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification. That's building up, building up of the body. You can read that. So he's talking about being reconciled to God, being reconciled to one another, being reconciled in the body of Christ, the church. And then he's going to come, and he's going to talk about the family. He's going to really talk about the husband-wife relationship, and that's what I really want to center on for the rest of the time that we've got this evening, is uh, how we are to lead our families and our children, and especially how we are to lead with our wives because Paul talks about it. I'm a leader. I'm born first or created first. And as I'm created first, I lead, and I'm reconciled now. I'm, I'm God's man. I've received Christ. So how do I, as a reconciled man, lead my wife? Well, Paul's going to talk about that uh, in this fifth chapter. So let me begin right there. I'm going to just give you two things tonight. Number one is this, lead personally. You're to lead personally. Let me show you what Paul does in chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's kind of interesting here. This is a theme. He's setting something up. He's saying something to us. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk. Peripateo in the Greek. Um, our word peripatetic comes from it, to walk around. A podiatrist is a foot doctor. It's, it's how you conduct your life. It's how you live out your life. 
It's how you regulate your life. He says, uh, you walk in a manner worthy of the calling uh, with which you've been called. When I went off to college, my daddy said, you've got my name, don't you mess it up. That's what he's saying right here. I bear the name of Christ. You know what Christian means? It means little little Christ. Christian means little Christ. You bear the name of Christ. And Paul comes here and he says, listen, in the way you conduct your life, regulate your life, live out your life, let it be worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We've got a calling on our life. Every man in here has a calling on his life. The calling that I'm talking about tonight is your being a leader, being a godly leader um, in your home and with your wife. And if you're not married, uh, statistics tell me that 96% of you that are not married are going to be. So you are going to need this, what I'm sharing with you tonight, if, if, you, if you're not married as of yet. Now look at verse 17 of chapter 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles walk? You know what he's talking about there. He's talking about those that uh, are lost, those that are without Christ. How do Gentiles walk? Well, look at what it says in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. They've got a darkened mind. Um, They have uh, become callous, verse 19, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every impure uh, impurity with greediness. He said, you didn't learn Christ this way. He said, you're not to walk like that any longer. That's not you anymore. Look at chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. He comes back now and he says, this is how you no longer walk. And now he comes and he says in chapter 5, verse 2, this is how you walk. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Fragrant aroma. I didn't check this, but I almost would guarantee you that is the dominating verse in, in this whole passage right here. I guarantee you there, that's the dominating. He gave himself up for us. I guarantee you that's the dominating verb right there because that's what he's going to talk about. Look at verse 15, same chapter, chapter 5. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. He says, now listen, this is, this is what you do. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live. Be careful how you talk. Be careful the things that you do. Be careful the places you go. And you say, okay, now I want to do that. I want to walk right. I want to regulate my life right. I want to conduct my life in the right kind of way that honors God. I'm this leader because I was created first. I've been reconciled to God, but how do I put this together? Now watch it, what he's going to tell you in verse uh, 17. It says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand God's will. Now you say, when a preacher, that's where I struggle. I just struggle knowing God's will. And, and if I were to ask, you know, all right, when I tell me, what do you think God's will for your life is? Well, I really think God's will is that I have a six-figure income and a corner office with glass windows, and um, I've got an expense account that's unlimited, and I really believe that's God's will for my life. You're going to get, listen, you're, that's not that would be wonderful. I hope that's God's will for everybody and that you start tithing. Um, (laughs) But let me tell you, 
these things we dream up are not, we think, well, maybe this is God's will for my life. Let me tell you where you get God's will. You get God's will from God's word. His will comes from his word. Let me just give you an example here. I came across this verse. I read it again today. I've read it many times before, and I've just forgotten it. But I read it today, and I just love it. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. That's God's will for my life. I am to so live toward these grandchildren that I've got that they are absolutely thrilled to be around me and that God gives me that opportunity to constantly speak his word into their little lives. Little children need, listen, let me tell you, it is necessary. It takes two people to raise one child. It takes a mama and a dad. And then they need help, and I'm so thankful that I get to pour into the life of my grandchildren. That's the will of God for my life. It doesn't have to do with a corner office and windows and a certain type of salary, but it has to do with this. You're going to find God's will right here in God's word. So he says, don't be foolish, but understand. Get in God's word, and you'll understand the will of God for your life. Now, here's the second thing. That's follow God's will, verse 18. Be filled with God's Spirit. Be filled with His Spirit. Now listen, the issue is not how much of the Spirit you have. The issue is how much of you does the Spirit have? That's the issue. It's not how much of the Holy Spirit do I have. It's how much of me does the Holy Spirit have. Does he have all of my life? Are there areas of my life that I've not yet turned over to him. So he comes and he tells us, live, walk. He uses the word walk. He's telling us constantly, walk like you are a man who has been reconciled to God. And if you get into his word, you will discover his will so you won't be foolish and you can be filled with his spirit. That's where the power comes from. So now he starts, what do I do? Verse 22, how do I lead practically or, or personally, practically, one of the, one of the two? Here's, here's what I do right here. Wives, he begins, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now I'm going to stop and tell you we've got to understand this because we don't want to be foolish in this area. As I start to lead my wife, I've got to understand what God has said to her. And if I look at this and look back up, just one verse, it tells me, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm to be subject to my wife. My wife is to be subject to me. But this also means I'm to be subject to you. You're to be subject to me. You know what the word subject, by the way, is in the Greek? It's hupotasso. Hupo is a prefix, and it means under. And tasso means to place. So it literally means I place under. As a leader here, I'm to place myself under the body of Christ here. As the pastor here, I place myself under the body of Christ. You're to be submitting to me. You're to be submitting to one another. You're to be submitting to others in the church this way. And then he comes, so just keep that in mind. Then he comes and he says to the wives, be subject. Now let me just stop with that because I want to tell you that's in the middle voice. 
when he says to the wives, be subject, in the middle voice, the subject is acting on itself in the middle voice. In other words, I don't help my wife be subject to me. That's her responsibility. That's what she's to do. She's to police that, not me. I might help her out and say, check it once in a while. Just check this. Let's just check and be sure we're, we're all right right here. But this is her responsibility. That, that burden is on her. God's going to hold her responsible for whether or not she does this. So she's not to, you know, I'm not there to direct her to be subject to me. She is to do that herself. Now watch here because it says, to your own husband. That's a genitive of possession. That is, my wife doesn't have to give you the time of day. It's only to me. This is not Islam, folks. This is Christianity. And the Word of God says my wife doesn't have to subject herself to not another cotton-picking man anywhere. Just me. So he comes and he says, you understand that. Wives, you be subject. Now, that's the only verse here that Paul gives to the wife. He makes another little blurb down here in verse 28 and a little blurb over in verse 33. But the rest of all this is he's talking to the man. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. In other words, he's saying this, there is a role that I play. As the head of my wife, I literally lead her. As Christ is head of the church, who leads the church? Christ leads the church. What are we constantly crying out for and praying for here? Oh, God, lead us. Give us your guidance. This is your church. It's bought with your blood. It was birthed by your spirit. This doesn't belong to Mac Brunson. It doesn't belong to the Southern Baptist Convention, and it doesn't belong to any one person or any group of people here. This is the church of Jesus Christ. So he leads it. How does Christ lead? He leads by sacrificing himself. Christ is also the head, the leader of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. That is, he has saved. He has died for the church. He doesn't lead. Christ does not lead your life, and he doesn't lead my life, and he doesn't lead the church by strong-arm tactics, does he? By abusive language, no. Uh, by domination, by control, by making you submit and do something. He doesn't lead that way. Uh, he leads with love. And uh, in that love, we see it because he gives himself to the body. He gives himself for the body. He gives himself for the church. He gives himself for us. That's how he loves the church. And that's what Paul is saying, just exactly the same way that Christ leads the church, you lead your wife, and that is in sacrificial giving of yourself. That's how you lead. You're a reconciled leader. How do you lead? In that way right there. Y'all remember that? There was, a, there was a great scene in Patton. Do you remember when Patton drove up to that intersection? You had, you had one division that was trying to move from this direction to that direction, one 
division trying to move from over here to over here, and they got to this crossroads, and they're all just knotted up. They're all just bunched up. Have y'all seen the movie Patton? Okay. Um, he gets to this. He gets to this intersection, and he's got these two divisions that are stopped. They're out there fighting. It's muddy, and he pulls off to the side, and Patton gets up. Now, this is an interesting. Talking about being gentle, why did I use this guy? Um, but the picture is really neat. He walks up there, and he's got that riding crop in his hand, and he taps on this Jeep, and he says, you back it up. Back this thing up this way. And he points over, and he says, now, you back that up that way. And he says, now, what we're going to do is we're going to coordinate this thing. And it begins leading. You, you come, you come, come on through here. Then he points to them, and he said, come on, get it this way. Get going, get going, get through here. And he begins to bring organization, and he begins to move that. That's your role, man, in your family. That's what God's elected and created and called you to do. You do that kind of thing right there. You come in, and you give direction to the whole shooting match. You step into a tense situation. You step into a place, and what you do is this. You bring peace when you come in. You bring unity and you bring love into that situation. You solve it the same way Jesus Christ came and solved your big problem, which was sin. How did he come and solve your problem? He came and he sacrificed himself for you. He died for you. You step into that family situation and with the, listen, you're filled with the Spirit of God which means what? What does that mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Does it mean you start speaking in tongues? No, that's not what it's saying. Let me tell you this. It means you start living out the fruit of the Spirit. That's what you do. You start expressing and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. You start exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. You know God's will. What is God's will? God's will is that for me, as the spiritual leader of this home, I step in and I work with my family to take the tension. I do it in love. I do it in peace. I do it in unity. I do it with kindness and goodness and patience and all of the fruit of the Spirit. And I walk into that, and that's how I lead my family. I'm a leader. I've been reconciled. And so I come, and I lead personally. I do it. I want to tell you something. Never in my life did my daddy ever call the church and want to speak to the youth guy and say, I've got a problem with my son, and I think you need to straighten it out. My daddy enjoyed straightening it out too much himself. (laughs) And you men need to be the men in your home, which means you are the priest in your home. You are God's elected priest in that family. And you're to lead them personally, not somebody else, you. Now, let me give you the practical side. The practical side is this. Now, listen, he picks it up in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So he tells me there, he didn't just tell us that he loved us. He didn't just give us his word and say, you know, I've loved you, so I gave my only begotten son that whosoever... Listen, what the son did was the son went to the cross. He showed me that he loved me. He demonstrated his love for me. 
for us, for you. You know, Paul is so careful to say this over and over in this, in this passage right here. He comes and he says, you love your wives. And he's going to come back and he's going to say that husbands ought also to love their own wives as much as they love their own bodies. Why is he emphasizing that so much? Because a wife needs to hear that. A wife needs to know that. Um, you've all heard the joke. I know you've heard the joke. The, the, the sad thing about it is it's all too true. This, you know, this wife was crying. She's upset. And he comes in. He says, what in the world's wrong with you now? And she says, you just don't love me anymore. He said, yes, I do. She says, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. She says, you don't ever even tell me you love me anymore. And he said, honey, I told you on the day we were married that I loved you, and if I ever changed my mind, I'd let you know. Well, that's too true. That's too true. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying what you need to do is you need to let her know you love her, and not only that you love her with your words, but by your actions, what you do. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. It took his life to do that. I want you to remember back. In fact, if you've got about, look back with me to Mark chapter 10. I think it's in Mark 10. Do you remember when, yes, Mark 10, look at verse 35. James and John come up to Jesus, and they ask Jesus this question. Um, teacher, we want you, or they make this statement, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, those are grown men saying that. I generally get my grandsons, they'll come up and they'll say, Doc, now we want you just to say yes. Now, will you say yes? I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to say yes or not. Now, they'll come up, well, come on, I want you to say yes. I said, well, you, look, I tell them, here, I'm quoting scripture to them, what do you want me to do for you? You tell me first what you want. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you guys don't have a clue what you're asking. You, you, don't, you don't even know how the kingdom has got to be purchased. You don't, you don't understand any of this. But listen to what Jesus says to them. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not that way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, you know what it's like out in the work world. You know what it's like down at AT&T and IBM. And you know what it's like down at the mall. And you know what it's like down at the car lot. And you know what it's like in all these businesses. What it's like is this. Those who rule lorded over you. They exercise authority over you. He says, when it comes to my kingdom, we're not doing it that way. He said, we're going to turn this thing completely upside down. He said, my kingdom, if you are going to be first, then you're going to have to be a slave of all. And if you're going to be great, you're going to have to be a servant. Now, this is the wisdom of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? Right here. This is what he's talking about right here. 
get in the word of God and discover this is his will for the way I lead, that if I'm going to be first, I've got to serve. If I'm going to lead, I've got to lead by serving. For those of us that are on staff, listen, just me, I'm to be a servant to this congregation. Now, I can't do everything in the world for you, so don't start calling me, but I'm to be a servant here. Every leader in this church, every deacon, every elder, every Sunday, but for all of us as men, we are to be demonstrating this for the rest of the church. Listen, the whole church is not here tonight. Did y'all realize that? We've got a whole lot more that are not here than are here, and what they desperately need is they need to see men of God and how they lead. We lead by being that servant. The nature of God is just that. Listen, the nature of God is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The nature of Christ is giving. He went to a cross. He gave his life. The nature of the Holy Spirit is giving. He's giving us, he's given us gifts. He's distributed to each one of us spiritual gifts. He gives himself. He fills us. He stays with us. He walks with us. Let me tell you, it is absolute satanic delusion to think that I am to lead by pulling power plays on people. It is absolutely wrong for us to think that I've got to dominate somebody else. I've got to withhold something from, especially my wife, to dominate, to withhold love, to withhold affection, to withhold attention from her. That's a sin before God. I've got to get the upper hand. I'm going to achieve this. Let me tell you something. When you achieve those things that way, you're never satisfied, you're never happy, and it never, it, listen, it never brings a sense of completion in your life. It's when we understand that we are to be like Jesus Christ. And if we're ever going to hold a position of leadership, we must be servants. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. Did you ever stop to think that Jesus showed up at his wedding with holes in his hands and his feet and a thorn on his head and his back riven in his side with a hole in it? That's how he shows up. What he does is he shows up that way, not just saying I love you, but showing us that he's loved us with his very life. Let me close this by showing this to you in Scripture. Go all the way back to Psalm 128. We think Solomon wrote Psalm 127 and 128. Kind of interesting. Talks about family. But there's a kind of connection between Psalm 127 and 128. You'll see in the, in the, in the heading there a song of ascents of Solomon. That's actually in the Hebrew text. That's not a heading that that uh, the people who did the Bible just put in there for you. That is actually in the Hebrew text. This is Solomon's psalm. And we think he wrote, we're not certain, but we think he wrote Psalm 128 as well. So look at Psalm 128 and listen to how this plays out. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, 
That begins, I've been reconciled now. Who walks, what have we been looking at? That's what he's been talking about. How am I going to walk this Christian life? I'm a leader. I was created first. I lead. I've been reconciled. I walk in his way. Then look what it says in verse 3. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. Now, guys, let me tell you something. That means more than that she's going to just stay pregnant. Uh, It's talking about more than just having babies. She's going to be a fruitful vine. She's going, listen, she's going to find fulfillment in her life. Her life is going to be fulfilled. You remember the song Glenn Campbell wrote, Such Are the Dreams of the Everyday Housewife? You see everywhere, every time of the day, the everyday housewife who gave up the good life for me. Well, Glenn Campbell, what a sorry you. She gave up the good life for you. I want to tell you something. It should be the opposite of that. She got the good life when she got you. Guys, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? If she had to give up the good life for you, I like to think my wife got the good life when she got me. And it all has to do with the fact of the way I treat her and lead her. And that she's fruitful. She's like a fruitful vine. She flourishes. She's happy. She finds purpose and meaning. There's joy in her life. I like to think I'm a little bit responsible for some of that. And we are when we lead like this. And then look at what he says about the children. Your children are like olive plants around your table. You know, the olive tree will not bear anything for seven years. But after that seventh year, it will bear fruit from then on. I have actually seen olive trees that are 2,000 years old, and they're still bearing olives. So for 2,000 years, first seven years of those trees, they never did anything. That's what he's talking about there, that you're going to pour into the life of these children, and at some point, what you're pouring into them, they're going to begin to bloom with. I've watched... I've watched some men, and they have reared children with a foul, filthy mouth, nothing but cussing constantly. They smell like old beer, three days old. They are constantly harsh and hard. I'm a rugged man. And they give fruit to these children. These children start bearing that kind of fruit. I never saw that. I'm 60 years old. I'll be 61 next week. And at 61 years old, I still stand up and honor my daddy. I rarely ever heard anything of a cuss word come out of his mouth. Rarely ever. I can tell you this, my dad smelled of Old Spice. He didn't smell of old beer. I never saw my daddy drink. Never. Never did I ever see him do that. I never saw my dad look and ogle and watch another woman. Never saw him do it. And I like to think that I'm passing that down to this young man's children, that there's a heritage that's there. Because right here, he comes to say, the Lord bless you from Zion, Jerusalem, and indeed may you see your children's children and peace be upon Israel. He said, if you want to impact the city, and the nation and the coming generations, you live like this. You live this way. 
you lead your family and you lead them in a godly way. You lead your wife because the way you lead your wife is going to impact the way you lead your children and the way you lead your family. I read a story of a guy that I think so much about. You will too. I'm sure most of you in here, he's an undisputed leader, undisputed great man, very famous, very well known. He talks about growing up under his father and watching his father. He grew up in Illinois, and he said in Illinois where I grew up, he said they had these gravel pits. And back in the early part of the 1900s, he said they would hire farmers to bring their wagons and horses down there. And when the farmers didn't have other work to do, they'd bring their wagons and horses there, take them down into the gravel pit, load the wagons up with gravel, and pull the gravel out. And he said he was there with his dad on an occasion, and he said they were watching. It had, it would, you know, it had rained, and the, it was a little bit muddy. And he said there was a young farmer had his wagon down there with two big old horses. And he said the guy couldn't get them to come back up. They couldn't get back up out of the gravel pit. And he said the young man was down there just cussing them for all it was worth. And he said he had a stick, and he was beating on them, he was jerking on them. And he said the horses were all frothing at the mouth. You've ever seen a horse get all excited and upset? It's just frothing at the mouth. He said they were jumping and pulling back from the guy. Every time he tried to pull them forward, they were pulling back, moving back like that. And he said his daddy sat there and watched it for a little while. And then eventually walked over to the young man and he said, why don't you let me give it a shot? Let me give it a try. Now listen to what he said. Dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them, stroking their nose with a soft touch. Then he walked in between them, holding their bridles and bits while he continued talking very calmly, very gently, and he said they started to settle down. Gradually, he stepped back out in front of them. He gave a little whistle to start, and he said they began to move. He pulled on the reins to guide them, just to pull them gently, and he said, within moments, those two big plow horses pull the wagon out of that gravel pit as easily as could be, as if they were excited to do it. I've never forgotten what I saw him do that day and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act angry, get mad like that young farmer and lose control. But listen to what John Wooden said. I learned an indelible lesson that day. It takes strength inside to be gentle outside. That's how we're to lead. Lead your life with God's wisdom and lead your wife well because it will determine how you will lead your children and your family.